Welcome to Real Estate Investing Unscripted, a podcast from Fund That Flip, where we explore some of the most creative, innovative, and inspiring stories from the real estate investor community. With expert tips and success stories you won't hear anywhere else, you'll come away with inspiration on how to improvise in the unscripted world that is real estate investing so that you can dominate your next real estate deal. Now your host, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip, Matt Rodak. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rodak, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. And today on the show, we have a Swiss Army knife of a real estate investor, uh, James Evans. James has built a portfolio of 20 rental units in the greater Boston area, is doing some condo conversions, is doing some ground up new construction projects. He also does some passive investing via LP syndications into different apartment deals. Uh, and in his spare time, uh, started the Boston Real Estate Guild meetup that has over 200 members. Um, oh, and I think I forgot to mention, he holds down a W-2 job. So needless to say, a very busy man. Uh, so with that, appreciate you taking the time. Welcome to the show, James. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I uh, appreciate the Swiss Army knife comment. I don't think I've heard it referred to that way, but uh, it, it fits the bill for sure. <laughs> I was going back and forth between Swiss Army Knife and Renaissance Man. I thought, you know, <laughs> you know we'll, go with this, we'll go with the Swiss Army Knife here. Right, so. maybe, maybe by the end of the podcast, <laughs> you'll change your mind. <laughs> there you go. So let's, uh, let's get into it. I think, you know, you got a, you got a really interesting story. So we'd love to, love to hear a little bit from you, your background on, on how you got into the real estate investment game and, and just, uh, you know, your journey up to, to where you're at today. Yeah, sure. So I guess growing up, my uh, mom was a real estate agent and my dad is a kind of generalist lawyer, but involved with real estate as well. So I knew it was like a thing that I wanted to get involved with. Um, I was a finance major during the 08, 09 recession, kind of graduated in that time frame. So real estate mortgages, that, that, whole, that whole kind of side of finance was kind of in the limelight. I would say in a way it's not traditionally in the limelight as a finance major, it's much more bond stock, corporate mm -hmm. finance focused, I'd say. Um, so I think that was, I was kind of fortunate to get exposure that way and kind of uh, the safety net of, of being an undergrad student. Um, and my first job out of school was with uh, PwC, one of the big four accounting firms on their uh, consulting teams. And I would fly you know, across the country. I was pretty much living in an airport. So I'd fly out Monday, fly home Thursday. And it was interesting work. I was primarily working with uh, larger banks and commercial lenders, but I was also kind of never home. So after about you know six months or a year of that, I decided to give up my lease and, and move in with a couple of friends and just basically crash on the couch during weekends. <laughs> we also had this kind of cool policy where if you weren't flying back home, you could use basically that money to do something else for the weekend. So got a lot of really fun trips with friends in and you're just kind of living this nomadic life for a few years. So that really allowed me to, to save a good, good amount of money, you know, traveling during the week, being able to expense most of my living expenses and, and food and stuff um, on client sites. And then, you know, only paying like 150 bucks a month and, and quote unquote rent um, to crash on my friend's couch. So couch surfing. Nice. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was fun for a while gets old, you know, after, after a year, I was kind of ready to have my own place. So, um, I'd saved up a decent amount of money, paid off us to my student loans and was kind of ready to, um, look at buying my first place. So I, um, 
at the same time was moving from DC back home to Boston. So I was kind of shopping around in the greater Boston area. And the, the math I was doing in my head was, okay, I want to find at least a two bedroom place so that I can have a roommate and have them pay the majority of my rent. I was kind of used to this weird borderline uncomfortable living situation as it was. So that wasn't a huge deal to me. And I was just addicted to this low overhead lifestyle. So I wasn't really thinking about appreciation or you know any any kind of thing like that. I figured all that was bonus. Like to me, if I could buy a place where I could get a roommate and that roommate would pay a significant portion of kind of my mortgage HOA and, and monthly expenses, that would be a win for me. And the only real area where the math checked out on something like that is an area in Boston called East Boston. It's been exploding the last 10 years or so, but this was kind of on the ground floor. Maybe there were some rumblings about development and it was kind of like, you know, potentially going to be an area that saw some upswing. But my downside scenario is I, I didn't think it was going to get any worse. It was a, found a good place. It was a foreclosure that had actually recently been renovated. So it was, you know, you typically think of a foreclosure and it's, you know, a complete dump that needs, you know, mm-hmm. a gut rehab to make better. This had already been through that. So I think just as a result of the financial crisis, just, you know, whoever was in there before couldn't keep up with their bills and got it on the market for a pretty good deal out of, out of REO. So the bank owned it. And yeah, that kind of got me started on the journey. I, uh, I lived there for two years. So were you, were you having a plan to get into kind of real estate more, more on a, I guess a, a larger basis at this point, or were you just thinking like, just kind of want to own a place and not have any, you know, living expenses, if you will. Yeah, it really wasn't until I actually like was living there and realized how good of a deal I got. And just out of now after six months or a year, I basically had made my, you know, a year and a half worth of salary just by living somewhere mm-hmm. and um, buying a good deal in this place. And then it kind of hit me. I was like, wow, this is way easier than working. I should figure <laughs> out how to do this more often. Yeah. So that kind of got me you know, deep diving into the blogs and podcasts, bigger pockets, books, kind of the works. So I did a cash out refi while I was still living there. Took that money, bought a new place to live, plus a another rental condo. So now I had I had moved, I had rented out the place I was living beforehand um, to tenants, and I bought an additional rental condo. And I kind of just kept playing that game where I would either do a cash out refinance or sell one place, take the take the money and buy another place. As my kind of sweet spot were these, you know, sub $200,000 condo foreclosures that were in decent shape and just needed like a little bit of cosmetic refresh, like maybe put five, $10,000 into it, um, get it tenanted, wait a year, and then either refinance or sell it. So you're doing some combination of house hacking and the burr strategy kind of all, all rolled into one. Yeah. But I haven't come yeah. up with a creative catchy name for it, but <laughs> it worked. Um, yeah. that was, that was fun for a while. And then really kind of like saw myself more wanting to scale up, uh, multifamilies always seemed really attractive. And the fact that, you know, kind of spoke to my, uh, my business sense of economies of scale. And now you're really like buying a fully operational business and you're trying to increase profitability, reduce expenses, manage things better. And I looked at it as like, I'm, I'm, I'm buying like an operational business with just fewer components and more kind of precise competition that I can easier kind of pin down and not worry about the next app coming out of nowhere to, you know, suck me out or, or Google to, you know, come up with a new product that wipes me out. Um, mm-hmm. 
So I'd always kind of been looking for something entrepreneurial. And as soon as I discovered real estate, it kind of really, really hit home to me. Got it. So how did you make the jump then from, you know, kind of doing these, you know, it's almost more of a utilitarian way into the business of want to have a place to need a place to live, don't want to pay a lot for it or anything for it to, you know, I'm going to buy apartment buildings or get into condo conversions or get into ground up new construction. It's a, it's a pretty big jump from, you know, some paint and carpet, new flooring, maybe a kitchen reno to, you know, buying dirt and going vertical. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I kind of split off into two tracks. So on the multifamily side, you know, I had really kind of gotten into some of these, uh, I didn't sign up for coaching programs, but I followed them pretty closely. So like the Michael blogs, Joe Fairless, um, guys like that. I, I watched a lot of their videos, read the blogs, um, et cetera. And I went down that whole path of kind of looking out of market, trying to find, you know, things with a clear business plan. So, so I started doing that and I was looking, you know, Rust Belt, um, Ohio and some, some of these kind of random places that, you know, I'd, I'd try to follow the steps and I kept running into roadblocks. Either lenders wouldn't deal with me because I was out of state, agents wouldn't take me seriously. It's just kind of one thing after another. And then on Bigger Pockets, um, an agent from Manchester, New Hampshire, which is about an hour drive from Boston, reached out to me and it's like, hey, like, we have pretty similar economics up here. I think we could find some good properties if you're interested in maybe taking a look. So we looked for a while and I found a six unit building that was, I don't know, under, 300,000. So it was kind of, it wasn't too far of a jump in that sense, in terms of I could come up with the money myself. I didn't need to raise a ton of capital and I could kind of, you know, cut my teeth and learn the business without putting anyone else's money at risk. And that's, that's kind of what I wanted to do from the get go. And we just found the right building where I knew there was kind of a business plan to raise the rents up to market separate utilities and start charging that back to tenants, reduce expenses. And there are kind of like three or four very clear cut things we could do to take it from A to B um, and increase the value. So that was on the multifamily side. I basically just started small enough where it wasn't super intimidating. Yep. Then on the condo conversion side, um, same thing. It was terrifying. Like there are these huge projects all over Boston. Um, it was kind of the name of game a few years ago where you take an older three, four unit building got it, and then just sell them off as condos. Requires a ton of money, a lot of risk on the execution side, having the right contractor, architect, contacts, all that stuff. And I just didn't know what I was doing. So my approach there was to actually just be an LP, a limited partner, and invest money in someone else's deal. Um, so it's so, a you know, good, really good operator in the Boston area. Um, Ricky Belvo from, from Volna Capital is doing a lot of really cool stuff in, in the area. So I kind of plugged in with him, put some money into one of his deals and I would just kind of shadow him, bug him on email, show up to the sites and kind of figure out what he was doing. So that's kind of how I got started in that. And to be honest, the more I've done kind of rehab projects on my own, the more and more for those types of projects, I would rather either joint venture or um, just be an LP in someone else's deal. It's, it's something you have to do full time, I think. Yeah. I think you have to be on site. You have to manage the team. Um, and there's just so many moving pieces that for someone like me that uh, is kind of slowly building their real estate business, it's, it just wouldn't, wouldn't work for me to spearhead that. So um, even the ones I've been more involved with now, I've had uh, really good joint venture partners that can handle the day-to-day stuff. And I've been more than happy to you know, give up um, 
more money and more kind of equity in the projects for, for that trade-off. Yeah. I think that's a, it's an interesting point because I think a lot of people get captivated by the potential upside in, uh, in investing in real estate and taking on some of these bigger projects. But at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's a job, right? You're creating work for yourself that someone has to do. Um, yeah. Or, or not the, be, the, be the money guy. Right. But right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, to me, it comes down to priority and kind of the, the phrase I've been, you know, expressing this to people is uh return on headache. And I think that's kind of been an important lens with which I've been looking at things more and more um, now and, and where, where I'm getting the best return on headache for what I'm doing um, and kind of trying to focus more on either, you know, the, high return, low headache things that are few and far between. And then maybe one to two high headache, high return things. I think that's that's where a lot of the meat is, is picking things that you know are going to be stressful and hard, but the light at the end of the tunnel's there and the rewards are there, whether financially, intrinsically, however you kind of want to frame that. And just kind of sticking away from the things that are like, this is just going to be a ton of work and there's no immediate value or kind of compounded value over time. Yep. I like that return on headache. I'm going to steal that. Uh, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. So, so you got a lot going on. It seems like you've been busy over the past better part of 10 to 12 years in real estate, working consulting gigs. You mentioned to me earlier and you, you put it kind of into your notes, the notes over to me, which I appreciate that you, you, you also got a full-time job, right? So you're, you're, you're what sounds like a pretty active real estate investor with also a full-time job. And I think a lot of people think, you know, got to be one or the other, or man, it's really hard to get this real estate business going because I've got all these demands from work. Talk to us a little bit about how that's worked. And, and also, I think you, you did something creative kind of pre-COVID that um, I'd like you to hit on as well. I think you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So it's a great question, I guess. The most important thing is I've just been super lucky with the companies I've worked for, the teams I've worked for. I've had great bosses, um, both, you know, working at PwC before this and now Boss Consulting Group. Just, you know, can't say enough good things about both companies and what it's like to work there. So, you know, a lot of a lot of what I hear from people about their job, their bosses, the lack of flexibility, I just like it's, I don't know, I've just had a very different experience. I think part of it's the company culture, part of it's just me setting expectations, blocking out time. I mean, we're recording this at three o'clock on a Thursday. I blocked out the hour. Like I let people know in advance that I'm not, you know, gonna be available right now and I'll like get done what has to get done before I sign off today. So it's it's kind of um, you know, something's a priority. I, I think I'm pretty good about sticking to that priority and letting things that aren't priorities either fall by the wayside or just do them when it's, when it's a better time to do them. So I think that's, that's helped out a lot. And then kind of speaking to that, I, one thing I kind of explored was, you know, as, as I was building the real estate business, there's this decision that it seemed like either had to commit to doing it full time or just put it on the back burner, maybe buy a rental a year or something and just kind of slowly build my portfolio and just, you know, take my foot off the gas with some of the other activities. But when I, when I went into, so I made the decision that I was going to leave uh, the corporate world and give real estate a shot. I wanted to talk to my boss about it. And we ended up deciding that we would give a reduced capacity working schedule a try. So I, I stayed on at 60% capacity. So working three days a week, kept all my benefits, 
And we said, we'd give it a trial run, six months. If it doesn't work out, no hard feelings. We'll go separate ways and kind of best wishes for everyone. It was awesome. I, I was nervous at first that I'd kind of get sucked into still working, you know, 80, 90% and only getting paid for 60. But it just, uh, I think I was pretty good upfront about setting expectations and like, you know, I'm not working these days. So if we need meetings, like we're scheduling them for the other days. If something is super important, we have to be flexible. Totally on board with that. And then kind of likewise. So they're, you know, typically I'd work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Every once in a while, I'd work a Thursday and take a Monday off instead. So we were, we were kind of, there's this good two-way flexibility and understanding within the team, you know, when we can make something like that work. So yeah. That's, that's really cool. And you say you got lucky and I, I think there is a, a bit of luck in working for the right types of companies, but I'd also be willing to bet that um, you you earned that ability over time, right? With your you know performance and uh, doing what you say you're going to do and building building the trust up, um, which I think, uh, you know, maybe maybe the same thing doesn't apply to everyone at the, at the shop. I don't know. I don't know your shops, but I think... Um, talk about, you know, thinking about investing in your real estate business for people that are trying to get started. Um, there's other ways you can invest in your real estate business before you start your real estate business, which is investing in your current job. So you have options like James created for himself, whether intentionally or unintentionally by doing a good job for your employer. Right. Generally, I mean, as an employer of, you know, 40 40 people, like I don't want to lose good people. right? Right. So if good people are, uh, wanting to do other things. And if there's a way to, to, you know, have some version of best of both worlds, like I'm going to be inclined to do that for people that perform well. Right. So, um, hundred percent. You know, I, I yeah, think, I think, I think as soon as you like, you kind of have to establish yourself as a high performer. Yep. Um, and you, you do that, you work hard, you like show people you're working hard and you produce good results you get some leverage from that after, you know, and, and I should also make it clear. I was, I was working there for three years before this was even like a discussion. So I had some time to build my credibility, build my brand up. And then, you know, by the time we had this discussion, it was the same thing kind of to your, what you just said, Matt, I was kind of thinking from my, you know, manager boss's perspective at the time, they'd rather take a chance, like keeping me on at, even if it's a reduced capacity work, cause they're still going to get like a good amount of, results from that versus taking a chance at hiring someone else waiting six months to find the right fit. And then, you know, 50, 50, it works out or it doesn't work out. Yep. Um, so I think that to your point, that makes a lot of sense. And and we kind of use that again down the line. Um, you know, we, we took uh, some time off of work and to travel. Um, so we hit the road for five months or so. Um, and it's kind of the same equation. I, when I was like, Hey, like I would love to come back and work here when we're done. I'll, this is not happening for six months. So like, I'll be happy to stay on until then and train whoever you find to replace me. Uh, my preference is to come back and to do a kind of unpaid leave of absence. Totally understand likewise. And I think it was kind of a no brainer on both sides. Um, using that same logic that they held the job for me and I came back to work. Yeah doing the right things, taking the long-term perspective in your current situation generally turns into leverage um, in some form or fashion that you may not be able to totally envision when you're doing it. But I um, yeah. had a similar experience with my former employer before I started this company. Um, I don't think I ever like re- recorded a vacation day because people just <laughs> knew like he gets his stuff done. Right. So yeah. like, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a thing that my boss was ever concerned about um, right. after you, you build into that. 
so that's super cool. So, you know, I think a lot to learn here from people, particularly looking to get, to get started or maybe already in the game and trying to figure out how to balance things out. I, I think uh, one of the things that I've learned in my entrepreneurial journey is there are no rules, um, right. In terms of like, Oh, like what's the right way to do it. Um, I think this is a really, really cool example of, you know, kind of a couch surfing to buying a house just to save some money and not pay rent to saying, Oh man, there's a way to make money into this and figuring it out all the way through, you know, negotiating a, a part-time work schedule to, to have a little bit of the best of both worlds. So I think thinking creatively um, when looking at whatever your individual situation is and, and, you know, I also like the idea how you just went in and asked, right? Like what's the worst thing they could say? No. Right. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's where we're at already. So I'm just yeah. either confirming the answer is no, or I get a yes. So, right. 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 Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. I think that's, you know, really good points to me, kind of the, the two eye openers with kind of taking this unconventional approach to a lot of things is like, number one, you just kind of have to be okay with some people aren't going to get it. You're going to like, here's some shit. Like, uh, you'll be at like a work happy hour and someone will go like, get me a beer and say, Hey, like, can you actually only have 60% of this? Like, are you allowed to finish it? <laughs> so like, you, you gotta like be okay taking kind of the yeah. jabs down the time. They're jealous. They're jealous. Yeah, they are. <laughs> and frankly, like people on both sides of the equation are jealous. Other yeah. like full-time investors I work with are super jealous. I still get, you know, really good benefits and like a stable W2 job, which I can use on mortgage applications. Like it, it comes in handy for sure yep. to have that kind of stability. Yeah. And um, then obviously people on the corporate side are, are jealous too that, you know, I, I'm only there uh, three days a week. Three days a week. So um, <laughs> that told me that that was a good signal that I was probably doing something interesting and, yeah. and good. It was, it was definitely a change, like taking my foot off the gas on the career progression. You know, at firms like that, you get a lot of type A people that are kind mm-hmm. of always looking for that next promotion the next raise, the next step. And for the last two years, I just completely did not care about any of that, which was a like huge, huge change for me from, um, from being at PwC, where it was, you know, you gotta, you gotta get promoted early. You gotta, you know, what's, what's my raise compared to my friend's raise? What's our year end rating? It's all this kind of competition. And I just like completely put that by the wayside, which is a huge, huge stress kind of mental change yeah. and stress relief. Yeah. A hundred percent. If you're like only worried about doing your job and doing it well, work gets a lot easier. Yeah. Takes care of itself. You don't have to worry about yeah. all the politics. You, you, well, you created your own path, right? Which, right. which, which could still be through BCG or real estate, but like yeah. you've got optionality now and that just probably yeah. takes a, a load off. It's cool. And then on the, on the real estate side, I think the other thing I've learned was like kind of similar, just no one's, uh, I don't, I don't know if there's anyone I'm sure someone has, but in terms of like the people that are putting out a lot of thought leadership and coaching, like no one, no one has the same path I've had and that's okay. And I think there's a tendency, like you have to do things the way someone else has done them or whatever this kind of model of success is. And I think you can learn a lot from kind of, you know, taking bits and pieces from different people, but no one's going to have the same path to you. And it's okay if you're not following the same progression scale, you know, success as whoever else is out there because everyone's on a different path, different life, different opportunities available to you and different priorities. And you kind of have to start thinking for yourself in terms of what makes sense for you. Yep. Totally, man. I love it. I love it. Well, I want to, I want to shift gears for us a little bit here. Um, it is, uh, as you mentioned, a, a, a Thursday afternoon, it's June 18th. We are three months into, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, if you will, with the shutdowns and everything else going on. So, 
would love to hear kind of how this is, has impacted your business, your real estate business. And, um, you know, we do some deals up in, up in Boston as well. And, um, usually have some, some loans hitting the platform up there for our investors that often listen to this too. So we'd love, love to kind of hear from you, like how this has maybe shifted, how you're thinking about things and, uh, more generally, like what's going on in Boston right now. Yeah. So I would say in Boston, we're actually in this kind of interesting window where I think people that are hurting the most in the real estate world are probably agents volumes way down, uh, from a pricing perspective, I think because of that and because inventory, both on the existing and new build side, uh, Mm -hmm. is so far down prices have actually kind of seen a little bit of a bump, Mm -hmm. um, especially as demand starting to come back. I know like mortgage applications have been going through the roof this week. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so that's kind of interesting in these kind of bidding wars that we're starting to soften a little bit are starting to come back. So there's still, uh, there's still, there's still a lot of demand on the demand side, but the supply has, has yeah. shrunk, which is keeping yeah. pricing flat or up, but less transaction volume, which is just going to hurt the transactional people, whether it's real estate brokers or title companies or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've been pretty imbalanced for a while. It's, it's starting to get a little better. Um, unfortunately, a lot of the new supplies on the kind of luxury side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a similar story in a lot of higher price coastal markets with strict zoning laws. And it's, it's just very hard to add density. You know, that zoning can be a two year thing before you can even get a project shovel, shovel ready. Um, yeah. I'd say kind of six months to a year is pretty much average, um, to get a building through zoning. So it's, uh, that the the kind of associated cost with that and just just supply and demand of construction labor, the cost of builds really high. So to build new kind of existing, to build new uh, workforce housing or affordable products is is really hard to make happen. So I think a lot of developers are trying towards either the luxury side or they're doing bigger low income light tech type projects um, mm-hmm. with subsidized financing. So that's that's my sense of the Boston kind of market there. On the on the rental side, I've I've built my portfolio primarily in Southern New Hampshire. Um, it's a little more of a landlord friendly state. Price to play is a little lower. Yields are better. Cap rates are better. So to me, it's just kind of like a clear business plan. Whereas Boston area, I think you're going to take you get a lot lower cap rates and kind of rely on rent growth and appreciation, which is fine. And that's that's what some people do. It's just for me, I would rather kind of take the higher higher cash flow and just kind of it's, it's, it's a different market, um, yep. but it, it works for me. And from there, really haven't seen too much in terms of collection impact. I think nationally, like median income is actually higher than it was pre-COVID. Right? A decent jump um, between stimulus checks, unemployment bonuses, and some of the other kind of financing programs that have been out there. Like national median income is actually higher than it was pre-COVID. So whether that stays once the benefits dry up, Doubtful. Uh, we'll see what else comes down the pike in terms of stimulus money. But I think things are in the work. You know, some states are starting to divert some of their federal funding towards rent relief, which will be helpful for landlords. But it's been this weird kind of mix of apprehension, waiting for the other shoe to drop. Some people have got stuck in really bad situations with these eviction moratoriums. But luckily, I haven't been super impacted. Yeah, good. So, uh, not, not, not much of a shift then to your plan, kind of a little blip here and, and keeping on, keeping on with building out the, the rental portfolio in, in New Hampshire, it sounds like. Yeah. 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 Keep on keeping on. I also like, I'm a pretty 
firm believer in the concept of dollar cost averaging. Um, it doesn't really work if you try to time the markets. Yeah. Uh, so I think kind of no matter what's going on, given whatever market conditions there are, if a really good deal comes up, it's probably going to be worth investigating and buying. I think like people way smarter than I have have gotten in a lot of trouble trying to either time market yeah. tops or bottoms. Um, so for me, it's just kind of like, where are we now and what does a good deal look like? And you know, dollar cost averaging over time. Yep. Makes total sense. All right, cool. Last question here. So the, the theme of the show, real estate investing unscripted, uh, you know, we all know anybody that's been in the game for a little bit, no matter how much planning you do or how much number crunching you do, um, there, there's almost always going to be some type of uh, a surprise or something unexpected that none of the books, none of the blogs, none of the coaches could have, could have helped you with um, just something you got to kind of deal with when it, when it comes and some things are easier to deal with than others, but we'd love to love to hear from you. Maybe something that, um, something that happened to you on one of your projects, what you learned from it and, and, you know, kind of how you take that lesson forward with, you know, everything else you've done since then. Yeah. Um, the, the one that immediately comes to mind is just having a global pandemic hit while you're trying to <laughs> do your first live in rehab, uh, with your wife while you both have to work from home every day. So yeah, that certainly wasn't uh, expected. Um, the the other one I kind of typically bring up is actually the first condo I bought. That was that foreclosure. My my work project at the time was doing uh, what was called the independent foreclosure reviews. Uh, so we were engaged by a big bank to um, basically review thousands of foreclosure files to figure out if any borrowers were financially impacted by the bank screwing up, like they basically had to test whether they foreclosed on someone that shouldn't have been foreclosed on. Meanwhile, I'm buying this foreclosure in Boston and we get about a two to three days away from the closing final title search, realized the foreclosure wasn't done correctly. Um, they did things out of order and they had to re go through the entire foreclosure process. Sale got called off, had to wait like three months. They had, they like legally had to relist the property so I was like, I had my like goodbye party in DC. I was ready to move out to Boston. <laughs> and now all of a sudden I have nowhere to move to. Yeah, back to the couch. Luckily, yeah, luckily <laughs> I had a couch with my name on it. So uh, I was able to ride that out. But it was kind of just this surreal moment of like, I am actually working on this project at work and it's happening to me in real life. So t- talk, talk me through that. Like, how would you, let's say you're buying a foreclosure now, like what are you looking for to make sure that that doesn't happen again? Is there some, is there some way you can kind of figure that out before you get two to three days before the, you know, the yeah, you buy title insurance. I mean, like it's, yeah. it's kind of like wide in mass, uh, Massachusetts closing is done by lawyers. Um, I know in other States title companies do them, but it's a pretty thorough title review that they do. And, and, you know, as a buyer, you pay good money for it. So you hope that it's, it's something like that's found during the title search if not, it's kind of why you have title insurance, why the bank has title insurance. There's this crazy underground industry of title search that I could kind of go on a, a whole other rant about. Um, <laughs> and I'm hoping something gets done about that in the next, you know, five to 10 years with technology being where it is. I think it's, I think it's kind of crazy um, how much goes into that, both on the insurance and the search side. But um, so yeah, things of- like this come up. It's come yeah. up on other things where like the previous notes were uh, drawn up incorrectly, whether it was like, coming from a person instead of an LLC on the, on the, on the deeds, on the quick claim deeds, like things like that happen. And that's, that's where these kind of title companies and attorneys kind of make their money during the closing process or, or add their value. It's a, yeah. 
Yeah. I like to call it the deal grenade. Like anytime I talk about a deal being done before it's actually done, it's like almost always gets grenaded in some way. Yeah, so it's like, 100%. as soon as you threw that party and we're on your way out is probably when the title company found it would be, would be my guess. Against yep. it. hundred <laughs> percent. And, uh, I'm, 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 I echo that the superstition around like not talking about deals. I don't put anything on social media until like it's actually closed and done because things like that happen all the time. Yep. Well, listen, James, this was super, uh, super interesting. Really appreciate you taking the time. I think, uh, I think come, some of my takeaways here were, uh, that I liked was this idea of return on headache. Right. So I think, uh, and I, I struggle with this and I'm sure a lot of people struggle with it is, it's easy to be busy, right? And stay busy and feel like you're getting things done. But are we working on the things that are actually going to give us the most return on our time? Um, and I like how you also said in there, whether that be monetarily or intrinsically, right? Because I think there's things like, even like this podcast that you're doing, right? Like, isn't going to put any money in your pocket per se, but intrinsically uh, is, is supporting some of the goals that you're trying to accomplish with building your brand and telling your story and helping other people out. So I think spending time on things that are going to give you uh, their most return relative to uh, uh, headache is super, super insightful. I think the other, the other kind of big takeaway for me was um, the reason that you've, you've been able to do what you've done with your current situation of having a job and pursuing your real estate goal or, or aspirations is how you manage and set priorities and then also set expectations with with people, whether that be your employer or, um, your partners or your contractors or what have you, which I think is, um, super important if you're going to do something the way that you're doing it, which is, which is cool. And then the last one is like, uh, I think you said it well too, is like, you know, there isn't a playbook for anyone individually. There's life circumstances that are div- different. There's, um, your, your job that could be different. There's, financial situations, right? So doing the research and following the, the, the mentors and bigger pockets and the rest, but, um, creating your own journey, if you will, I think is, uh, is important to, to find the success and happiness that, um, one of the great things about real estate, you can find it, you can create your own, you can create your own, uh, your own monopoly game, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Yeah. There's a ton of, ton of different avenues you can kind of go down and it's all about, um, what makes sense for you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a very, very clear and concise recap. I wish I could have said, said all of that, uh, that concisely from the get go and we would have been done a long time ago. Yeah, no, all good. So if, if people want to get a hold of you or check out what you're working on, is there a good, uh, Instagram or Twitter or bigger pockets or email? What's the best way for people to, to get in touch? Yeah. All of the above. Um, probably email James at gladcap.com G L A D C A P, uh, Gladstone capital on Instagram. Um, also, I'm on bigger pockets, so any of any of those will probably do the trick. There you have it, guys. James Evans, Gladstone Capital. Really appreciate the time. Um, thanks so much for taking it out of your busy schedule. Uh, thank you all out there for listening to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. For more great resources or to get funding for your next project, head on over to fundthatflip.com. Otherwise, I look forward to next time. Your host, Matt Rodak, signing off. Mm-hmm.